Welcome to the Mechanical Inc. podcast, a collection of conversations about the open source ecosystem. We speak with maintainers and companies that play a key role in ensuring the health and sustainability of open source today and in the future. Hey, Zach, and uh, welcome to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. This was a really quick one. <laughs> I saw something you posted and it was like, I think a week and we're having the conversation. So it's really, really, really cool. So yeah, it's I'm like a scheduling d- miracle. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, if anybody uh, listening to podcast knows about scheduling meetings, you know how amazing that is to do that across time zones and, you know, people working at different places. That is a miracle. But <laughs> all right. So, um, to start it off with, please tell us more about yourself, your background, how you came to do what you do, and what gets you up in the morning. Cool. Yeah, I'm I'm Zach Copert. Um, so I um, I guess if we look back at the, at the beginning of, of my professional career just to kind of understand where I'm coming from. Um, you know, I I studied electrical engineering, um, and now I'm doing software. So. Um, it, you know, I count myself in the group of people who shifted into software from somewhere else, just like a, a special trial. <laughs> if you've ever been through it, um, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, I got started actually in, um, right out of college, um, doing embedded software. Um, so software that's running on low level hardware, um, microprocessor and all that kind of stuff. Um, versus traditional like web apps and stuff that other other software folks might be used to. Um, so yeah, I, I, I started at Tektronix doing that. I worked there for like seven years doing, um, uh, started with software engineering and then moved into architecture, tried out uh, engineering management and uh, moved into innovation programs, which was super fun. Uh, and then I eventually started an open source programs office uh, there at Tektronix. Um, so, yeah, um, one one of the things that I've um, I've also done that's sort of like tangentially related, but not necessarily like a work uh, related item, is um, being a part of coding coach and doing some mentoring. Um, so that's actually one of the ways that I've got to meet some people from all over the world. That's been really cool. Um, networking is not like a first-hand skill for me <laughs> it's not for uh you know necessarily one of my strengths so i, I really love being able to be a part of coding coach and, and uh, connect with people that i wouldn't have normally so gotta work with folks from brazil and the philippines and all over the u.s and stuff so um yeah so it's it's fun to uh mentor folks there and if you've ever done mentoring i'm, I'm sure you know that like uh mentoring is like uh maybe a false uh image of what it really goes like uh it's really two people learning from each other <laughs> so uh both students um and and so i've i've learned a ton from folks there um and got to help some folks uh, get some jobs in tech too which has been fun um so yeah after um after Tektronics, I um, I started working at GitHub. I've been here for three years now, and I absolutely love it. It's honestly my um, my dream job. So, um, you know, as somebody who's really into open source, working at GitHub is like a really <laughs> a really special, amazing thing. <laughs> um, and um, I feel like I've got you know some um, some 
some great connections too. I've got to meet people that work at GitHub that, um, you know, the, the depth of their knowledge and time spent in open source is, is just amazing to be able to even interact with them. I feel honored. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so that's been great. Um, yeah. And, uh, the other thing about, um, about GitHub and this kind of goes into my motivation, um, and, um, what gets me up in the morning is just that it, it's been a really perfect balance for me of like being able to do software engineering work and being able to also focus on open source and inner source inside of GitHub, but then also with customers. So, you know, part of my driving factors are like, well, I really want to help people. Um, my very first job was at Office Depot as a computer tech and people like walked in like, my data is gone, help me, or, you know, or I have a virus and I need to do this thing and my taxes or whatever, like, and, you know, I would work on their computer and they would leave happy. Like it turned their day around. It felt like to me, you know, and I've been chasing that ever since. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, um, that, that feeling uh, has been really important for me to continue like working with GitHub customers and, and making an impact on open source bigger than just at a single company and, um, GitHub's enabled me to do that. So, um, yeah, so I really like that and it's, it's kept me, kept me balanced. So instead of job hopping, right, like I was mentioning the balance mm -hmm. about, um, working with customers or doing software engineering work or, um, all the different program work that I've done, I'm able to do all of them sort of at the same time, uh, without having to like constantly look for new jobs. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's been super cool. Great stuff. Um, yeah, I've been on both sides of the coin with mentoring and it's definitely not what people think. It's not like you come to the mentor with all your coding problems and they solve them magically and you go away and you're, <laughs> it's, it's definitely a, a, it's, it's about more than just the code. It's sometimes just about like, uh, somebody might feel like, I don't know if I'm the right person for tech. And you can talk through that with, with them. Like, why do you feel that way? And you can share your experience um, of maybe being in that same situation or having mentored other people that's gone through the same thing. So a lot of it is is sometimes even a majority of it is not even about like, oh, I my JavaScript doesn't work. It's like about so much more than that. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so before we dig into like the main converse, main topic of the conversation, um, there's something very, very related that I read on your website. And that is, so I, in the, in the questions said previous employer, but seeing that you've mentioned Tektronics. So at Tektronics, you, you founded, started the OSPO there. And, um, I'm always curious about that. I think there are a couple of, it seems like more companies are more getting more interested in this. Like what is an OSPO and how, why would we want one and that kind of thing? And then maybe somebody inside starts explaining, like, this is what it does and it's kind of important and this, blah, blah, blah. So when you were doing this whole thing, like at this company, um, what, what was your approach to it? What do you, what are the key selling points? If I can phrase it that way, when you're approaching, uh, your employer and saying, like, I think this is a good idea and this is why, why I think that it's a good idea. Yeah. So that, that's, um, 
such an interesting one to answer. I feel like this kind of connects to what you were talking about with, with mentoring, right? Is this that it's, it's almost more about sh- having empathy and sharing the technique of how to do something that you might know how to do rather than actually doing it for them, right? We're not fixing JavaScript code. We're, we're talking about approach to debugging, right? Um, if we're, if we're getting in the technical weeds for mentoring, right? And it's the same thing for OSPO, right? So OSPO solves open source programs office, right? OSPOs. They solve so many different problems for different people, even though it's the same vehicle, right? So for, for me in at Tektronics, it, it was, um, you know, I listed a, a bunch of reasons in that post about like things I said, oh, we're going to, you know, lower development costs and reduce time to market and reduce security and legal risk and that kind of stuff. Right. But, um, but, that that wasn't necessarily like the reason why they uh wanted to do it <laughs> or they're like okay yeah all these good things all these benefits um but in as i was describing things about the the way that i saw the current situation in engineering you know i'm seeing these trends i'm seeing these habits in our engineering and you know i've been in these different groups and large and small sizes and i i see it all over the place and um and as I was describing those, you know, what I think really hooked the engineering leadership and the, and the company's leadership was, is that they, they recognized that they wanted a culture change and that OSPO was going to be a vehicle to do it. And that I was volunteering myself to be, you know, to, to put that responsibility on my shoulders, that they could check in with me in a month or in a, you know, six months or a year and say, you took responsibility for this. How is it going? Um, and so I, th- I think framing it that way really helped. But the, the lesson that I've taken away from that um, to help others start OSPOs and things like that is, is that I really had a lot of authenticity um, in, in why I wanted to do this. And then a lot of relevance of like, not this is what's going on in the industry. Everybody's starting an OSPO, which may be true. <laughs> um, and, you know, other other competitors have OSPOs, any of that kind of uh, external environment stuff, but internally we had problems in engineering that we wanted to solve and we were going to use this to solve those. And so, uh, and so I had that, that authenticity and relevance that, that, um, made the, um, proposal sticky, so to speak, in terms of the minds, um, and, and hearts of the, the leadership there. Um, and again, this is my understanding as a person, putting out the proposal, they may have said like, yeah. I was just tired of hearing him talk. So I said, yes, you know, I don't know. Um, so yeah, have to ask them for that side of things, but that's my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, using it as a vehicle for change, the, the change that you want, like that's, that's very, very interesting. Huh. I haven't thought about it that way. Okay. Yeah, and there are You're certain changes the- that... Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to say there are certain changes, right? That OSPO is like particularly good at, you know, uh, decreasing legal or security risk or different things like that, or, um, you know, inner source more the, um, development costs and time to market. Well, open source too, I guess there, but, um, but yeah, if the, you know, if the shoe fits, I guess is to, um, quote the fairy tale, right? Yeah, yeah. And we're, we're going to dig into this topic a lot more going, uh, further in the podcast, but I want to like, step to the side a little bit and touch on some other things before we dig into that. Um, so one project that I've stumbled upon again now when I, I looked up on the stuff that you work is this uh, GitHub action called Superlinter, but it's more than a GitHub action. But um, so I've looked at it before and I was like, this looks interesting and then got distracted and then <laughs> now I stumbled on it again. So I was like, okay, 
I'm going to ask the person who works on this, what's the deal? What is Superlinter and why should one use for it? Like when should you use it, for example? Like when is it, when might it be too much? And then um, after that, just maybe we can touch on how can people get involved with the project? How can people contribute to it and that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I can tell you about what it was intended for, but often like when you create something, people use it for whatever they want, (laughs) you know, so um, and find other uses for it. And that's definitely um, been something that's happened. But um, so this wasn't originally uh, created by me. This was created by a coworker of mine um, that I sort of paired along with because he came to me and kind of said, Hey, I've been told that you know how to do this open source thing, and that's what I want to do with this project. Um, and so that's that's kind of how I got involved in it and um, helped out with the maintainership part of it. So um, yeah, so from from what he's told me, um, you know, he created the super linter as like um, a way to be able to uh, pretty much instantly or very quickly get set up with a bunch of linters that are applicable to your um, uh, project that you're working on. So a lot of people who maybe work on a, pro- let's say a JavaScript project, they might go, well, you know, that's neat, but I could also just set up an ES lint or something else like that. Um, um, some other action that lints my JavaScript for me um, and fixes my issues. The the real um, claim to fame, so to speak, or uniqueness of the super linter is, is that if you've got a monolithic application with lots of different languages, lots of parts and components and, um, and things in there, um, or, um, or, or maybe it's not a monolith, but it has a lot of different languages in the repo. Um, what super linter is really good at is you just use the same action, no matter what language you're set up with, it'll detect the languages that your project has. And you know, some people think like, oh, well, I only have JavaScript. Well, do you have Markdown? You know, it's not really a programming language, but it's a documentation language, right? So um, anyways, it'll detect all these languages for you that you have in your code and then get you set up with sort of what we would consider the industry standard standard linter and the industry standard configuration for that. Um, and so um, it's it's a really good way to just sort of like I want to click the button and have linting set up. Um, and you know, if folks don't know linting, since we've been talking about it for a little bit, is just being able to have something go through your code and automatically check for, um, you know, either what would have been compiled errors um, or um, or different kind of gotchas, security things, formatting and style. Um, and that's really nice when you're working on a group project like a lot of software is. Um, because not everybody agrees on style. And so then you get this one file or one project with like tons of different coding styles and it's really hard to read. And so linting helps keep all of that um, really nice and clear um, and consistent. And then also um, you know that it's um, valid code in terms of uh, functionally compilable. That's typical. I didn't know about the fact that it detects the languages and then like, applies the appropriate linters that is that's really cool i wonder um like i said I th- I, if i'm correct here so if i'm not please tell me but it is more than just a github action because my first question is okay cool so when i open a pull request it'll run these linters but what do i do locally while i'm like coding away in vs code is it gonna can i have it locally also so it can kind of check there 
Yeah, there is a local setup. Um, but it's, it's not, uh, let's just say it's not awesome. <laughs> um, it's more for development purposes, um, and things like that. So the, the workflow that the super linear was sort of meant to work with is, is that like, um, and this is the get the, the workflow that we use at GitHub a lot, um, when we're writing code on, on GitHub is, is that we will write code and do very, very small commits of code. And those small commits, um, before they're really ready, even for anyone to look at, will be pushed up to GitHub into a draft pull request. And once that draft pull request is there, actions are already running and already checking things for you. Um, and it's sort of nice because that even happens in the background while you like continue working on your next commit locally, that your, your action is running and letting you know and giving you feedback and all that stuff. So, um, so I find that Superlinear is really good in helping you get set up and the first time on a project and helping keep your code that merges in consistent. But it is missing that piece where it's it's really like has those local linters set up. But in VS Code, if you look at the super linter and say, okay, well, the super linter is using these things with this configuration, I can just copy those locally and then run that code locally with the VS Code plugin or something like that. Um, I've I've done projects where it's like I've got uh, a new technology that I'm working with, like Docker or something. Well, new to me technology. <laughs> uh, sorry, Docker. Um, uh, and uh, and I just don't understand it. I don't understand the format, and I'm really just sort of hacking my way through the forest, right? And um, getting that set up and getting the linter set up for that specifically is like, okay, well, which linter do I use and what configuration? So Superlinter sort of solves that problem for you. And then once it's got that set up, then you can sort of copy paste into local. Cool. So, yeah, so maybe that's like a contribution opportunity for somebody if they want to try and see if there's a, a little like NPX blah, blah, and it like copies all your, your linting rules to your local local machine, something like that, and you can check it into source control. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely welcoming contributions. So Awesome. Uh, talking about GitHub Actions, I wrote a little uh, GitHub Action uh, just to welcome first-time contributors to a project. Like if you open your first issue or you get your first pull request opened. I mean, there's there's quite a few of these, but it was more like uh, I wanted to learn how to write a GitHub Action. Um, it was a little tough, <laughs> to be honest. The hardest part is testing it. Like, does it do what I want it to do? Like, would it open... Would it comment on every single issue or would it just do it on the first one? Um, so I'm just curious if you are aware of any like tools, best practices, guides, anything that 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 can help people if they want to write like GitHub Actions to make it a little easier maybe. Yeah, that's a great call out <laughs> in terms of trying to learn GitHub Actions. And I, I remember this vividly because of all the bumps and bruises I have from trying to learn GitHub Actions myself and asking colleagues like on the Actions team, okay, I'm trying to debug this. What the heck do I do? <laughs> like, am I really, you know, doing local development, pushing it up? waiting for the action to run, looking at the logs and trying to connect this back to my local development to scratch my head and say what happened or, you know, all these things. And so it, it is, uh, it is something that can be difficult and it's been difficult for me. Um, the things that I looked at to get started from like a ground zero, I heard about GitHub actions and I'd like to try, you know, uh, is looking at the, um, uh, the documentation. So that's the docs.github.com, um, uh, quick start uh, on actions 
And that'll like walk you through step by step and then type this and then type this. And now you have an action that does this. So you can sort of see the inner workings. And then that like, you know, obviously sparks most people's curiosity of like, and what if I change any one of those things? <laughs> and then I could have an action that does something a little different. And, and you know, you build from there. Um, the, the other thing to help you from that ground zero point is, is that there's a, uh, a guide, which is different than the docs. So it's still at docs.github.com, but then it's at like slash action slash guides. And that walks you through like the more of the configurability and, um, and possibilities with examples around GitHub Actions. And that's helped. Um, and then the other thing that I'll say too is, is that I, I used the docs to try and learn, um, GitHub Actions and, um, but the, the two things that I, I sort of learned along the way was like, one, I think I learned better from videos than docs. <laughs> Um, so, uh, if I wish that there were more, uh, YouTube videos out there on GitHub actions and creating actions, and I think maybe it's my age, but, um, I haven't been on Twitch and like watched people live code actions or anything like that, but I heard that's a thing. Um, and so that probably would have been helpful. Um, and then also, um, the other thing was the pattern that I noticed other, um, Hubbers, GitHub people doing um, was they would have a repository dedicated to testing out that action, um, and so they were they were they were really going through this full almost development cycle even as they were testing code, right? So they they would try to change something, put that in the action, upload it to the action, deploy that action to a repository that that called it, and then watch to see what happens. Um, and I find that I found that extremely helpful once I integrated that into my workflow. I'm, I'm much more of a like test driven development person. And so like ship it and then see what happens. So felt really backwards to me, uh, but with actions, at least I've sort of learned that that's the way to go. Yeah. Cool. So, um, yeah, so there's, there's definitely room here for improvement. Um, I've also tried to use a tool called, I I keep getting the name wrong, so I hope I get it right this time. I think it's called ACT, which is supposed to allow you to run your actions locally. Um, and it comes with a doc. It, it like has this Docker container that has like all the things that your runner would have when it's running on GitHub. But um, I've had mixed results with it, and I 100% believe it's me and not ACT. I just need I just need to figure out how to use it properly maybe i'm not sure because i was like trying stuff and then i was like i'm not sure if this works because then it seemed to work with act and then i'd push it up and it would fail i was like oh goodness gracious where am i going <laughs> so it's it's interesting it's definitely but i agree with you on the other point as well uh with regards to having in general like educational stuff in different modalities because i've come across a number of people that is like i just can't sit and read docs all day i just cannot i need to watch somebody do this and like follow along kind of in my own little editor um so i yeah that that would be super so if there's people listening to this who's made like actions or write github actions a lot like hey make some videos it'd be awesome um yeah so that's 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 great um but i think there's some really nice advice that you've had in there uh that that can help people Definitely. So um, getting into the meat of the, or the salad, I don't know, <laughs> of, of this, <laughs> of the conversation, um, how this 
came to be is because you shared a post on the to-do group Slack where you announced the blog post that many people probably have uh, read by now, but um, GitHub basically open sourcing everything related to how GitHub runs an open source program office. Um, so before we dig into the details, perhaps we can start with the why. So why did GitHub decide to do this? And then um, there's another blog post that I believe is linked from this one that talks about like five reasons why organizations should invest in open source. Um, a big topic all by itself. So feel free to touch on that as little as, as you want and we'll focus more on the why for now. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so as much as um, this is 100% GitHub <laughs> uh, doing this open source um, work around their policies and procedures and guidelines and stuff for how we do open source as a company, it is also like... Um, a hundred percent, a passion project of mine to be able to do this uh, because it brings me, it brings me sort of full circle to back when I was trying to start in OSPO. Um, I, I had these engineering problems uh, about, you know, silos and developers that reported to me that were trying to um, code their own uh, web server. And I thought, gosh, there's a bunch of them out there. <laughs> Probably a better use of time just to grab one of those than spend the next nine months writing this. So, um, you know, uh, connect. I was trying to connect those problems to okay, how do I use an OSPO to solve this problem, and and how do I get started with my own OSPO? Like, where am I going to get the guidelines for what you should do before you release a project or um, legal advice on like <laughs> which licenses we should allow? Like, oh my gosh, this is also out of my league. Um, just because I can recognize the problem doesn't mean I necessarily have the skill set to be able to solve the problem through creating an OSPO. So it's a lot of work with a lot of different uh, skill sets in it, right? Like legal and compliance and program work and developer perspectives about this has got to be easy. Otherwise, developers aren't going to do it. Um, and uh, and then also company communication. How do I get the word out to everybody about um, what the OSPO is doing, what our new policies are. How do I make sure everyone knows about that um, and understands it and knows where to ask questions, all those things. So it's a huge learning curve for me. And so in doing that, I I had found the to-do group and um, uh, OSCON was coming up as well in Portland where I live. And so I grabbed a ticket to that as well. And I reached out to um, uh, Chris Debona, um, from Google or who, who was at Google at the time as, uh, um, I think their open source lead and, um, and said, Hey, I'm going to OzCon. I'd love to meet up with you and chat. I'm trying to figure out about how to start this, um, OSPO thing at my company, putting together a proposal. And then we've, we've had some talks and I'd love your advice, um, about how this actually gets done. <laughs> since you're somebody that runs an OSPO on, you know, sort of on the other side of this problem that I'm at. And, um, and I, to my absolute and complete shock and amazement, he was like, yeah, sounds cool. Let's meet up. Here's my number and stuff. And, um, so I got to meet with him and it was incredibly insightful, totally down to earth guy that, um, I, I will forever appreciate having that conversation with because it's changed my professional life, you know? Um, and, and so, I, I got a chat with him and he mentioned that, you know, up on our website at opensource.google, we have all of our internal documentation. 
And I, I swear somebody had to like clean up the drool off the floor when he said that, because I was shocked. Like, wait a minute, all this stuff that I'm trying to figure out, you mean you've literally open sourced it, <laughs> you know, it's in like a CCBY something or other um, license uh, on their website. And, and you go there and it's like, oh yeah, this is, this is like the documentation that they use. Now it's got redactions for like, you know, email so-and-so at Google um, to let them know that you are, you know, are, are open sourcing this so they can write a blog post or announce it or something like that, you know, let the media folks know. Um, and so it's got a little redaction uh, in that email address, but everything around it of, hey, maybe you should contact marketing. Like, this is so great. This is everything that they do at scale for all their projects, you know? Um, and so, you know, there was some of the stuff in there that was at a scale that we didn't really need that amount of structure for. But man, that was a huge jumping off point for me to be able to say, okay, I'm sitting down with legal engineering leads and other folks. I've got this Google uh, documentation that's been open source on how to run an OSPO and how they run it. I've modified it for what I think Tektronix needs. Take a look and let's review this together and you know, sort of redline things and figure out what we want to change. And um, I mean, I would probably still be there today trying to come up with all this stuff if if that hadn't been available, right? So um, that was just such a huge boon to me and, and so impactful um, for us to get started and to get started well with such high quality. Um, and so it's been really important for me working on this project where GitHub wants to open source it. So we're not the first, obviously, uh, in this area. Like I just mentioned, Google's got their stuff out there as well. Um, we take a different approach on things. Google um, is very large, uh, has a lot of structure around um, and a and, uh, good amount of procedure, which is great. A lot of companies and organizations love that. GitHub is a little confused um, because it thinks it's still a startup. <laughs> so it sort of runs in a much more fast and loose type of way, um, it, at least compared to uh, companies like Google and other ones that I've been at. Um, so um, we have a, a lot less policy. So it's almost an alternative, right? So like, here's the Google flavor. Uh, here's the GitHub flavor of how we run an OSPO. And um, there's probably a flavor out there for everybody about how they want to run their OSPO. Hence the, we open source it, you adapt it to what works for you and what makes sense for you, right? Um, but yeah, that that's, that's part of the why. That's my personal why and um, why we're doing this project. I think that the GitHub why is really around... Um, you know, GitHub strives to be the home for open source um, and the home for all developers. Um, and so with that, like OSPO is is really um, an extension of that, that mission in like, we're not just including the person who develops open source in their spare time or for a part of their, their job. We're including companies, right? Companies need some organization and structure around how they interact with open source. And so we're bringing them into the fold and saying, GitHub is your home too. Um, and you can do open source and OSPO and all that on GitHub. And um, so in releasing this, we're, we're hoping to help accelerate people's journey in um, starting their OSPO and to help reduce that barrier between companies and open source where companies sort of go like, <laughs> open source sounds scary. Uh, I can, when you say open source, I can think of all the things I shouldn't open source, right. And, and all of the things that would, you know, release a competitive advantage or, um, or internal IP that should be protected or, you know, like, um, 
I don't know. I think there's a reason why maybe open source isn't big in accounting because those are things you're not supposed to release, like the numbers and the, you know, um, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, so trying to reduce that barrier and trying to bring uh, organizations um, towards open source. And I think my understanding of it, at least, is is that 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 means not only getting open source companies to open source things and use open source, but also behind like the world of open source or maybe underneath the world of open source, there's this foundation of like shared values. And I say shared loosely because everybody sort of <laughs> holds onto it differently, but transparency and collaboration um, are something that um, maybe you wouldn't think of as being highly valued at a, um, more of a lockdown tech shop that you work at. Um, but in open source, they're everything, right? Um, if, an, if an open source project isn't open to collaboration and they're not transparent about things and parts of their code are hidden, well, it's not really open source, is it? Like, it, you know, that just doesn't even make sense to us. But all of a sudden in a company setting, it's like, oh, of course that makes sense. And I think we we take on the, the sort of military in, in companies. We often take on the sort of military um, principle of... Uh, least privilege, right? Or uh, maybe not military, but security principle of least privilege, where, well, if you don't need to know how this code works or that it exists, then um, you don't need to know. <laughs> so uh, we're not going to tell you. Um, and, and open source inside of companies is sort of like, hey, we're going to give you awareness of things at the appropriate level. Maybe we're not going to give every employee the uh encryption key algorithm to our product maybe that's a little bit more okay that's going to be inner circle stuff but um but there's a man there's a lot of stuff that people use to to do their job to create their product whatever it is write their service um that can be shared and i i know firsthand that when i was doing this at you know uh tektronics that they they've shared code across their platform that has ended up making their products that they offer to different at different, you know, um, they have like a basic education model. They've got intermediate and advanced stuff. Um, and it's made the whole product line more consistent. You know, you can go from one product to the next and you have that feel of like, Oh, I'm, I bet I do this right to, to modify the settings, or I bet I go here to change that. Um, and if they weren't sharing the same code, if they didn't, if the company didn't adopt that sort of transparency to be able to know what different departments are doing, if those engineers weren't collaborating, <laughs> they'd have different products. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've I've definitely encountered that. Um, like way back when I worked at some like large telecoms, it was constantly like doing this thing and being like, wait a minute. The people who built that has a similar thing. Why aren't we using that? And it's like, oh, but the systems are incompatible. It's like, hmm, okay. It seems like we're doing a lot of duplicate work here. Uh, not even duplicate, like, you know, triplet, <laughs> three yes. times the same thing, four times the same thing. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, so I, I can definitely see that, that that alone is already a huge benefit. And um, by the way, uh, small world. So I'll be speaking to Chris on the podcast <laughs> pretty soon. Oh, Chris awesome. Bono. So that's, yeah, that's wonderful. That, yeah. And he, he is so nice. Like I, I was a little afraid to reach out to him because, you know, like this is the 
dude who started the Osprey Google ran it for 18 years and all the other things that he's done when I started reading up about him it was like holy cow he's been in this forever um but I thought I'd try and he's just so 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 nice this is like yeah sure let's do it and I was like okay <laughs> let's do it so yeah um that post- podcast will come up soon um awesome now in the readme for the the um OSPO repository, uh, it, it references the opensource.guide, which is also a web property that's run by GitHub. Um, how do these two relate to each other? Is it like a complementary thing? Uh, yeah. Yeah, good question. We had to figure that out too. <laughs> we first wanted to do this because it was like, well, shouldn't shouldn't this information about doing an open source program program go on open source guide? Um, and shouldn't we incorporate it in there? And as we started to dig into that, it felt like, well, open source guide feels a lot more like that. Um, you know, I was talking about that barrier between companies and open source. It feels a lot more f- uh, from the perspective of someone who understands open source because we use language like, oh, uh, open source maintainer and, um, you know, starting a project and building a community and different stuff like that. Those are not corporate terms, right? Um, so, um, you know, it, when you're talking to, uh, companies about open source, they talk about words, they use words, I'll say it like compliance and, um, you know, open source releases and stuff like that. And, um, not as much community building and that kind of stuff. So, um, it's, it's a different language and it's a different, um, different perspective. And so what we wanted to do is separate those two things a little bit. And um, in the future, we may work on combining those two things and figuring out a way to sort of uh, ask the user or something <laughs> like, do you come at it this from an individual open source perspective or is this a, you know, on behalf of a company perspective and sort of, you know, light mode, dark mode switch uh, type of thing <laughs> um, uh, for, for that. I, I don't know. But for right now, we're, we're separating them. So that's, that's sort of the, the difference between them. Um, since the GitHub Osmo repo is much more for the corporate organization company um, working in open source. Gotcha. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Um, so we're not going to jump into each folder within the repository, but there is one folder that was really interesting to me. So I have like a couple of questions about that one. So um, the docs folder, I had a look at that. And so one of the one of the documents talks about archiving a repository, and um, so I work with uh, the MDN WebDocs project, and um, we spent quite a large part of 2022 cleaning up the org, like the MDN GitHub org, and part of that was archiving repositories because there was like a ton of them, and it's so hard to maintain when you've got so many repositories. Like you have to ask yourself the question at some point doesn't make sense for this to not be archived because what does it mean if it's not what is our responsibility as an organization to this repository if it's not archived and how does our responsibilities change once we do archive it um and that that alone was quite quite the the thing to define um and codify in actual words so um i think my so there's a sentence in in that document that says um, let it sit until you receive confirmation from a maintainer or an adequate length of time has passed. Um, now, um, 
I was going to ask you, like, what is an adequate amount of time? But that's impossible to answer because it's so project dependent. So I'm not going to ask that question. But I think, <laughs> I think the larger one is who needs to be notified? Um, and again, there's, there's, as you mentioned with the Osprey Reaper being at the moment very focused on like, uh, speaking to corporate, corporate companies. So, the MDN project isn't so much a corporate co company. It's more like just a big open source project that happens to have a lot of individual repositories. So who you tell is also different here. But in general, like when you think about, okay, we should consider archiving this repository. Like who, what is the process around that? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, I know that there's the resources that you mentioned in the GitHub um, OSPO repository. There's also some information on the open source.guide um, uh, web URL uh, on archiving projects. So um, yeah, beyond that though, when you're considering uh, archiving something, um, notifying people is like only one checkbox, right? <laughs> in the like, uh, how do we do this in the decision tree? Um, and, and uh, you know, you mentioned that. So when I'm thinking about archiving things, I'm thinking about um, what's motivating me to archive something. Do I do I not want to maintain this anymore? Is it old? Um, and by old, do I just mean it hasn't had a commit in a long time, or or maybe the technology is sort of irrelevant? Um, like you know, if if I had an open source tool for GeoCities sites um, specifically, <laughs> then that wouldn't be so relevant anymore. Um, and so, um, yeah, I try and think about like what's motivating me to do this. And that helps drive my decisions about archiving or not archiving. But, um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned too that the, the archiving, um, and codifying in words, all of all of the decision around archiving and what that means and what you're committed to as an organization, open source or not, um, uh, is intentionally freeform from my understanding. So, um, you know, I think before being able to actually archive um, a repository on GitHub, you know, there was just sort of this understanding of like, oh, there hasn't been a commit in five years. Don't use that. You know, and, and just every open source developer sort of had this knowledge in their head somehow. I don't know how they disseminated that, but uh, common sense maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and you know, GitHub wanted a way to be able to signal to folks like, hey, red flag, um, you know, maybe don't use this um, or, or cautiously consider using this specific repository or project. And, um, and archiving sort of signals that, right? So um yeah, I, I think the more on the communication side of things that you touched on, though, um, in terms of who do we tell and and how long do we give notice, it, it sort of scales with the size, right, of an impact of the open source project. So if let's say there's a super big open source project that's got a formal organization, formal maintainers and like funding coming from a foundation like um there's probably a lot of folks to notify and you should probably give a lot of time, like on the order of six months to a year. And if you're, if you're in that boat and, and find yourself like uh, considering archiving something of, of that scale, I'd encourage you to look at the, um, the Adam or no. Uh, yeah. Adam, A-T-O-M um, project. Um, 
by GitHub. And so they've, they've used their blog, but also their product as a way to notify users and, and contributors and supporters. Um, so they've actually built into the product notifications, um, about how, okay, this, this product is no longer going to be supported after this date. Um, and, and then written blogs about, you know, okay, we're choosing to sunset this and this is why, and this is our perspective, you know, sort of get that like human part of the message out versus just, you know, your service is shutting down too bad by like robot, uh, uh, AI overlord type of vibe. Um, kind of yeah, so don't that. ask chat GPT how to, how to do that. <laughs> exactly exactly or or uh or specifically ask it to do it in a human tone and see how good that comes out i don't know <laughs> um yeah so um yeah communication is really hard and and ultimately i i think i've learned to like no matter how good you think you are at communication and that you've like either covered everybody or written the communication a certain way um that's only the outgoing the transmitting message um the receiver has to decode that message that you've just put out there, right? And so the, the, the open source user, the open source contributor to that project, the maintainer of that project, like, uh, the sponsor financially of that project, all of these people, the company that relies on it, um, you know, maybe somebody's got a bunch of plugins for that thing that you wrote and, and they use that to get their job done. That's a lot of work you just ask them to do by saying, well, I'm not going to maintain this anymore. And, and that's why I think like exploring options of ownership um, is an interesting thing to think about when you're archiving, because maybe it's just that you don't want to do this anymore. Or you don't have the resources or it's not in like for GitHub. It's not in our roadmap. We have, you know, Visual Studio Code now that we're a part of Microsoft and that, like um, that's our IDE of choice. If, we're not in the game of competing with ourselves about IDEs. And um, so it just makes sense to, for us, you know, to consolidate, but that doesn't mean it makes sense for some Atom user. Right. So um, anyways, yeah, I just think that with that communication, you've got to be really, just really thoughtful and really human in it. Um, and that, and, and even then there's no guarantees about how folks are going to feel about it, but that's, that's open source, right? You can, you can tell somebody like, Oh, great feature request. I'll work on this later. And they could still be upset. <laughs> like you're not working on it now. Ah. Um, and, and you just have to have a certain, um, uh, learned toughness <laughs> of like, well, that's, that upsetness is their responsibility. I'm not going to personally take that on as like, Oh, I'm so stressed. I have to get this done for this person. I, you know, you don't, that idea of you don't owe them anything. Um, but, mm. but paired with, you still want to be collaborative, right? There's, there's, yeah. there's a yeah. balance. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And I, I, while you were talking about that, I, I remember that we actually have like on the, so the stuff I do with web docs, um, we have a project there that is in this like limbo stage at the moment because it's tricky to notify the people because um, it's the MDN data repository. And uh, one of the projects that depend on it is CSS tree, which is a massive project that's again used by a ton of other things, but they only depend on a really small part of MDN data. And the reason why we want to archive it is because on the MDN project, we're moving away from that and moving towards a similar thing that is built by the W3C. And it's up maintained by them. So it's going to be much, um, 
it's going to be closer to the source of truth than what the MDN project is. Like we are at least one step removed. Like they are changing the specifications, so you know it can be part of their workflow to update that specific repository and tool. But it's not easy to get hold of people at CSS Tree that run and maintain all of that stuff because these are all folks doing it in their free time. So, you know, we've explored different things. Like, for example, we we made a release specifically and updated the readme with like a big call out at the top saying we are thinking of archiving this. And then that gets pushed as an NPM release. So now you get an NPM thing like there's a new version and you get hopefully depend about like opening a pr and it's right there if you open up the like uh the change log the change log you'll see right there oh well, okay and then we say like point it to our github discussions and like please contact us there and this is how long um basically i think we decided on a year in the end like next year if nobody is opposed to it and we presented the alternative of this tool from w3c so i think that worked out nicely in the end but it it shows you how how much consideration and thinking goes into archiving just like one repository and i mean that's one of what used to be about 120 repositories you know that is what it took to to make all the decisions around just that one so you know it's no small thing like you have to take it seriously Absolutely. And when people take it seriously, that's that's what's really great about seeing open source survive and thrive and, and not sort of fall into this tragedy of the commons that a lot of folks talk about, where it's just like you got this unruly, unmaintained mix of things that are somewhat maybe functional or have might have been abandoned and you don't know and you know all that kind of stuff, right? The untended garden. Um, so. Yeah, for sure. Um, so talking about untended garden. Um, so also one of the things that's touched in one of the docs in the in the docs folder is about your organization's presence on GitHub. Um, so like I don't know how many people know about the .github repository and what its role is in a GitHub organization. I discovered it by looking at GitHub's one, and I was like, how does GitHub make their org page look so? freaking cool and i <laughs> dug a little bit and i found oh there's a dot get up thing and you can put stuff and then it shows up there um so now the mdn one also looks really nice and it's very inviting and i think that makes a big big difference when you land on that page so um what would you say are some of the most important aspects of an organization's profile so as you go to getup.com forward slash mdn like what what is important for people to see there yeah Okay, so a uh, big disclaimer on this is that I um, am not somebody who is uh, particularly good at like marketing or brand identity. Okay, so know that as you listen to my response. And my response is much more uh, from the perspective of like when when I um, go to uh, use an open source dependency or check out what an open source organization or repository is doing. Uh, or maybe a company that's working in open source, um, what I expect to see there as a user or, or wish to see. Um, so big caveat there. But um, when when I go to an organization page, some of the stuff that I really like to see is first off, like um, what what is, um, in what way, I guess, are is this organization or repository like uh, involved in open source, right? So... A lot of times, I think in a lot of 
marketing things that I see for companies that maybe do a lot of different things. You know, um, it's difficult to figure out actually what they do sometimes, you know, um, especially when there's lots of corporate terms of like, oh, yes, we're we're an infrastructure company that helps to support uh, people with customers with infrastructure needs. It's like, are you talking about bridges or like uh, containers or like orchestration? I don't know. Uh, I have no idea what you do. Um, yeah, so it's it's really nice to get up front right off the bat. Um, you know, this is this is what we do, and then it's also really cool to see um, from an organization standpoint. Like, um, you know, here's here's what our business is, because sometimes that's different than like your open source thing. So, like when I go to um, the the DreamWorks um, organization, you know, I, I kind of already know what they do. So maybe it's not as important <laughs> to, to see that. But what I don't know is how they're involved in open source. So again, one of like the first needs that I'm trying to have met um, as I go through that page. And then, um, and, and I'm personally looking for connection points, right? So if they have any projects in JavaScript or in uh, Golang or uh, in C or C++, then I'm instantly peaked and like, ah, I'm going to check out this project and see what they're doing with it. Um, because it's something that I have a connection point with and, and I, it, you know, it's almost like meeting a person you're trying to establish common ground. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so I look for that common ground and it's really nice when people pin the repositories that are sort of their, um, top repositories so that I can see, okay, these are the ones that they want me to look at. Um, and, and so I can quickly glance from there. And then the other thing that um, I, I wish that everybody did that I find that hardly anyone does is to like be have a really clear tone in your um, uh, in in your uh, in all of your writing in in the actual readme there um, or the you know the organization page because. Um, like if you read GitHub's, I love that it has such a GitHub tone, right? It's excited and inviting and and all of these things. And I, I don't want everyone to be that way. I just want everybody to have a tone so that I know how to interact with them. Because if I'm going to open an issue or submit a pull request or something on that, when I've gone to the organization's page, I I can match their tone. And again, this is a relationship building thing. Um, you know, if if you were to greet me on this podcast, you know, Hello, Zachary. Um, you know, it's it's very nice to meet you today. I I wouldn't respond with sup, you know, like <laughs> a very informal greeting, right? I would I would notice as a human that you have a certain tone that you're speaking to me with, and I would match your tone so that we can have common ground to stand on in in our relationship and that we'll be better understood. Um, and I don't know, humans just do that mirroring thing, right? Uh, you're mirroring tone back to each other or using the same language that somebody else uses. Um, so if, if I see happy and excited on the GitHub organizations page, when I go to open an issue, I might write an issue with that same tone saying, Hey, this is an awesome project. I've just started using it and I, I, I love it. Next paragraph. I'm also super confused emoji, you know, uh, and I could use some help out on this. Is there any resources I could check out before, you know, I, I sort of asked for further help individually or something like that. Um, and, 
And again, if somebody had a more corporate corporate tone and they listed that they're, you know, not accepting uh, contributions or something like that, then I would know uh, before I went and opened an issue and felt like, oh, I got corrected, you know, um, and and shouldn't have done that. So, and and there's a good reason for that, right? Like lots of lots of government bodies are like, hey, we want to participate in open source and we want to post the stuff that we're producing as a matter of transparency for the people that we're governing. Um, but you know, we're not doing open development. Um, and that's not a part of our workflow and we have, you know, whatever that makes that really difficult. Um, you know, regulation code six, two, nine or five, whatever. Um, and, and so then I, I know how to interact with them. So just sort of setting that stage, setting that tone and helping people to know like, um, yeah, where you stand, I think is, is important. Yeah, that's great advice. Love that. That's a lot to think about. Um, I think we get quite a few of those things right with the MDN one, but there's some stuff that you've brought up that's like made me pause for a second. I also have a another well, my business has an org on on GitHub, so and it's it's terrible. Don't look at it. I need to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> and then um but it's because I've been in limbo as to what I want to do with it. Now that I know, I, I can like do it properly. And then I have a community of early stage developers that I that I run that's also an org on GitHub. And again, uh, it needs some love. So this is going to help me when I, when I approach these two. Um, so I think one of the other things that I've struggled with and, and something that's, um, that's mentioned in, in the repository is how critically important it is for an OSPO to talk about the things that they've achieved in a given period. And I know like also some open source projects that, for example, are funded via something like Open Collective. For them, that's also critical because that's how their sponsors, how they justify their sponsorships, right? Like, why should we pay you again? Like, oh, because we've done all these things. But one of the things that's hard is in an OSPO, I can imagine, like I, have, I haven't run one or been part of one, but I've been in open source for a while. So I know there's a lot of invisible work that happens as people term it. Um, what are some of the key metrics that, that a common OSPO would use um, to keep track of and report on? That's a that's a great question, and the I feel like the answers are as varied as people's motivations for having an OSPO, because sometimes we use metrics to accomplish our mission, but especially when OSPOs are getting started, sometimes they tend to steer towards like using metrics to rationalize their existence, um, and by that I mean like the the job functions and the fact that you have an OSPO and you're paying people to. Um, to run that um, and spend their time on that. So I think for the people who are trying to justify their the OSPO's existence, it looks metrics look a lot more like um, you know uh, compliance, right? So like legal compliance. Are we complying with all the open source licenses for things that we're using? Sort of this get clean motion, right? Um, we need to make sure that we clean up any anything anywhere where we're not complying. Um, and, and getting good standing with our open source licenses um, and sort of like this get to 100% and then keep it there and stay clean. Um, and so I've seen a lot of metrics around completion for that zero to 100% or 
um, you know, zero to however many licenses um, or projects you're using as dependencies. So, um, and then um, I think from from like more established ospos that maybe aren't trying to rationalize their own existence or they feel really well supported by their leadership um they they tend to focus a little bit more on the mission a little bit more on like um you know we've open sourced this project and we're building a community around it um and it has this purpose and we really want to help to tend to that project by monitoring community health and they define community health as you know um whatever it is that they define that as but you know things things like um you know uh number of open prs per time per week or per month or per year um to say that okay there's activity going on and healthy community has uh activity um but it also has productive activity so how many of those prs are getting merged you know how many of these issues are getting closed as completed um and versus closed is just like no we're not going to do that um and um and response time is a really big one that i see so time to uh first response on an issue time to first review on a pr and time to actually you know resolving that pr from when it's opened or resolving that issue from when it's opened so that gives you a pulse on on the community's cadence um, and then you can say whether that meets your expectations for a healthy community or not. So obviously that's really varied as well. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of that sort of community um, measurement and then um, license measurement. And then the other thing that I've seen too is um, folks focus on more of a developer happiness. And I think this comes out of a lot of like the space metrics and um state of DevOps uh, report type of metrics where developer happiness has come up a lot and, and organizations are increasingly trying to say like, well, you know, I'd really like to up my developer retention. Like I'd like people to stay here longer and be happy working here. Um, and so like, what can we do? And OSPO can play a huge role in that, right? Um, because it's one of those lever points, like, like security teams, right? Um, OSPO or security teams or legal, they can all choose to say, lock everything down and only allow the written exception, um, you know, with all of this rationale, uh, what's allowed to be done in this company. And so people start to think like, um, you know, oh, can I, can, can I, can I say this? How do I get my job done? Oh, there's all this red tape. Uh, what hoops do I have to jump through and, and all that type of stuff? Or they could take a, a more of a self-service approach, right? Where it's like, here's the guidelines, here's what we're trying to do, and we extend a certain amount of trust to developers. And so here you go. Serve yourself by following this open source release checklist before you release something, you know, which may have something like, oh, review all your code commits, um, make sure the commit messages and the code itself doesn't have anything offensive or anything proprietary, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, pretty standard stuff, but the unique thing is, is that um, that the developer is trusted to go through that themselves, right? It's not an audit of some external third-party thing, right? That there's actual developer trust. And developers are really happy with that. They feel empowered to be able to get the thing done that they set out to do, which is open source this um, this project that they've been working on. So um, yeah, taking taking a, 
enablement approach, I think is, is really important. Um, when you're, when you're thinking about these metrics that OSPOs are using and how they set up measuring themselves, um, cause we should, we should have a goal and then we should try and measure, um, with metrics, how we're doing against that goal versus the other way around, right? Like letting our metrics of, uh, drive things because, it's easy to say you have 100% license compliance if you don't allow anyone to use any open source projects as their dependencies, <laughs> or maybe you have a such a long form to fill out if they want to that they just they don't do it. So they either don't tell you and your metrics look great, um, or they don't do it and your metrics look great. So yeah, sad either way. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great stuff. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, it's it's tough to find those metrics and and making them be meaningful and like you said, not just a way to to try and signal something. Like, look at our metrics; it looks great, but you know, if you start poking at them, then it's like, oopsie, yeah, you weren't supposed to look there. Um, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I, I yeah, goal and then the metrics that lead to that goal makes a lot of sense. Um, so another thing that I I saw in there and there's there's a lot of documents touching on policy and that's a whole podcast in itself, policies and licenses. So we won't dig into it too much. But the one thing that I'm curious about um, is the the concept of a contributor license agreement. So I have contributed to a, a lighthouse from Google. And when I did, I had to sign one of these. It's really easy to do. Like there's like get up action and it, things and you sign a form and two days or so later you're like okay cool we can accept your contribution um so it's not a painful thing it wasn't painful but it was interesting because i don't encounter it a lot um so i'm curious like when when do you introduce a cla is there a point in time when you introduce it or is is it you know what what governs a decision around that kind of thing yeah um yeah, even the way that the question is framed too, right? That that points to scale, right? When do you introduce it? Like, it's kind of obvious you wouldn't introduce a CLA for uh, an open source project that you're like, yeah, this served my needs and, you know, it's been six months and nobody has looked at it. <laughs> it has one GitHub star and it's mine, um, you know, type of thing. No CLA needed. You don't even have contributors yet. Um but I, I think especially when you look at, and I'm saying that in the terms of it, like a, a personal project, right? When you look at releasing something as an open source project on behalf of a organization, that organization is going to have a certain uh, legal risk tolerance of accepting contributions um, because it's a, it's frankly a security and a, and a legal risk surface if you're ingesting contributions, right? So um, let's say I've open sourced a, a, a core part of what github.com um, uses uh, you know, for, for doing whatever and, and people can now inject their code into that malicious or otherwise, right? Um, and so, yeah, there we just have to think about this. It's really unfortunate. <laughs> That's the world we live in. Um, so CLAs come in in trying to make sure that... Um, you're sort of playing by the rules that are the bare minimum for that contribution to be accepted by by uh, the open source project, right? And so companies are really worried about this. So they're the ones with CLAs um, because they don't want to accept something that um, they shouldn't because maybe it's got a patent 
on the code that let's say you wrote some code, you patented that algorithm in the code that you wrote, and then you try to contribute that to an open source project, and then you sue that open source project for um, using your patent without permission, and they need to pay you lots of money, and um, you know, oh my gosh, like what a what a mess, right? This is not this is not productive open source, um, but is it allowed, right? Is it is How's that court case going to go? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. So, um, but that, you know, this sort of stuff happens. Um, and, and so, um, what, what people are looking for when they have, when they add a CLA to their project is really, uh, based on my understanding, I didn't invent these things, but, uh, is, is like, you know, is this your code that you wrote and that you own and that you have the right to contribute to this project so that I don't get in trouble by using it? Um, and do you grant me, uh, you know, uh, permission, um, to, to use that code? Um, and, um, yeah, it, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a forgery. It's not malicious intent or whatever, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's what they're looking for is that sort of authenticity and, and that sort of statement and commitment, um, and then when you've signed that, presumably in some legal case down the road that happens, they can point back to that and say, well, when you submitted this code as a contribution, you made an attestation or a commitment to us that this was your code. Um, and so we had no reason to believe otherwise, but you know, your buddy wrote it or something like that. And he didn't want it to be put in that project. So um, yeah, so it's a form of protection. Um, I would... I would um, I would really encourage people to look though. One of the things that we've listed on the GitHub OSPO um, uh, repository is is that you know we, we've brought attention to the fact that there are terms and conditions of using GitHub, just like for everybody on GitHub. So this doesn't include GitLab or uh, or others, um, at least that I'm aware of. I haven't read their terms and conditions. I don't know, um, but uh, at least for GitHub, that when you um, contribute code to a repository um it's it's called like incoming equals outgoing or something like that where your code that you're contributing is under the license that that project operates in i cannot say that well okay my my code that i contributed to your project well that was licensed as gplv3 and so you know now everything is going to be gplv3 um or or anything weird like that right it's got to be uh it's implicitly licensed under whatever the repository license is. So um, a lot of companies, when they look at that, they go, oh, well, maybe that's enough. Maybe we don't need CLAs. And GitHub has actually made this decision. We don't need CLAs. We don't have CLAs on any of our projects um, because we feel that the terms of conditions of like, okay, well, we open source all of our um, projects as MIT um, or at least the vast majority of them is MIT. It's a very permissive license. So um, we know that we're accepting contributions under MIT, which is a very permissive license, which is great for us um, because we can we can use it in all these ways that are okay with the license, um, and we don't have to worry about um, adhering to a bunch of extra hoops to jump through, right? So. Um, yeah, so that's sort of GitHub's unique perspective. Uh, the Linux Foundation, Google, several other especially large-scale um, OSPOs would say that CLAs are maybe very important. Um, 
GitHub just doesn't hold that perspective. Um, and kind of like I described earlier that like GitHub doesn't have as many rules and regulations as a lot of other um, companies that, that, um, that are big in tech. And so we, we act differently to each their own personality. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Right. That makes it super clear. Um, yeah, I understand it much more. Cool. Yeah, thanks for that. So I, there's one other thing there um, that, it, that that I found interesting, and it, it talked about um, – so it, it I think it called it small code exceptions. Um, and I, I kind of – I think I understand what that means. But then the other thing that was interesting to me, and I haven't heard the phrase before, is registering your contribution. So I was thinking it maybe that relates to the CLA, so I was just a little unclear. So I was thinking maybe you could uh, explain that a little bit. Yeah, that's a good point. So I should probably elaborate on this because that that is super unclear. <laughs> but like without, if I shut off the context of like how we internally do open source at GitHub, where we have this like registration process, it's not like um, you must get an approval. It's like a it's like a registration. You're just saying, hey, I'm open sourcing this, and I've looked at the self service list and. I'm good to go. Thanks. Like, you know, there, there's not like this, um, you know, super cool rubber stamp or anything like that that we used to approve, um, and, and act as a gate for open source, um, releases. Right. So, um, that's what we mean by open source registration. So, um, when we, when we posted these, um, this repository, it's, it's a mix of like what we use internally and what we've suggested that other people use. So, to that purpose, we've sort of redacted the GitHub name out of everything and said like your company uh, or company name or whatever it is. Um, and and so, yeah, I should probably add some clarifying comments about what we mean by registration, um, because while that's clear to uh, Hubbers, people that work at GitHub, it, uh, it's not super clear to anyone else. Yeah, but, but that's good. I mean, that, that, that brings up a question for me. Like, would that be useful feedback that you like people to open an issue for like on the repo and say i read this thing and i'm really don't quite understand it could you clarify would that be absolutely yeah yeah contributions are welcome and those contributions specifically are uh are more than welcome um and it you know we're what we're really looking to do is help ospos get started and if Ospos don't understand what the heck we were trying to say, <laughs> then that's not very good for us to help them get started, is it? So yeah, that would be a, a, a real yeah. big improvement. All right, super. Um, yeah, so there are a, a lot of um, other documents in the repository. There's like way too many for us to cover in, in a single episode. So what would you consider to be the most critical of the documents and processes defined? So... I, I'm going to take this one personal, I guess, and I have a special heart for the uh, open source presence document that tells people how to set up their open source organization and the the readme, the organizational readme, GitHub, and all of that kind of stuff, and ask them to add an avatar of their company logo into their um, thing because sometimes I just struggle so much with like my. I, I sort of have this part of my brain that's like an email spam filter or, you know, just spam call filter or whatever it is. Right. And so if, if I were to go to, and this is not the case with Google, I'm just going to use them as an example of like an open source organization on GitHub. But if I were to go to Google's open source organization page, you know, github.com slash Google, 
Like I would not believe that it's them if their company logo wasn't there, if they weren't like verified that they actually own google.com, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And there, there are companies out there that are doing their best, honestly, to, to start their OSPO, get involved in open source and all this stuff. But too many times I've met with, um, OSPOs and they say, yeah, we've been working on this for three, four years. We're, we're starting to feel some momentum. They're maybe overly internally focused. And it's really awkward to bring up like, so when were you guys going to like upload an avatar <laughs> to your like little picture so that people believe it's actually you in uh, your organization and they're not contributing to like some false, you know, like somebody name squatting on your organization's namespace. Right. Um, and oh man, it's just such an awkward conversation. If I personally and selfishly, if I could save myself from those conversations and people could just use this document to go through and say, yeah, I've got my organization verified, you know, I've got my readme, everything is, looks really good and in brand on GitHub. Um, oh my gosh, my life would be better. Yeah. So until then, I'm, I'm stuck having awkward conversations. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks, read the document and make Zach's life a little easier. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> well, Zach, this was an awesome conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. There's so much knowledge and wealth in, in everything here. Like, I can't wait to share it with everybody. Um, in closing, uh, in your time spent setting up and running OSPOs, like what are some of the biggest mistakes and learnings that you can share? Awesome. Well, yeah. So thanks for having me. I've been super excited to have this conversation and, um, been looking forward to it for the whole week it's been scheduled. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. So thank you for that. Um, it's always a pleasure to be able to talk about this stuff and, um, especially in an environment where folks are, we're all trying to figure out how to do this, right? We're all flawed humans trying to wander through the world. And so like, um, this helpful open source spirit, I've, I've appreciated that you, that you have that there's, there's so many folks out there when I tell my work for GitHub, you know, they're, they're like, oh yeah, you guys have gone corporate or owned by Microsoft, all this stuff. It's like, oh my gosh, like we're just trying to make it in the world. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I appreciate that tone. Um, but yeah, so as far as like um, biggest mistakes and, and learnings for um, for running OSPOs, um, honestly, I, I I think that the I think there's I think it's Einstein maybe there's a quote from him that says something um, to the effect of like you know spending ninety percent of your time or maybe ninety nine percent of your time focusing on getting the problem right and then just the 1% of your time on solving it. That's the big thing that I, um, I, I've seen OSPOs make that mistake where it's like, okay, you've been going for three, four years. You've been going for 10 years, or maybe you're just getting started and, and you're honestly just like walking in this direction. That's not helpful to your mission, right? I'm not trying to say what you should do as an OSPO, but what you've self-professed that you want to accomplish, you're just you're walking in a direction that's not that. And there's all sorts of like really complex reasons and influences and environmental pressures and all that stuff um, for, for why OSPOs do that. But, you know, if you, if you want to um, really work openly and collaborate openly, and that's, that's your goal, um, then your, your metrics, your programs that you're running, your um, things that you're reporting up to, um, 
your senior leadership, the things that you're asking your developers to do should all point back to this. Um, you know, Google, I think, is the one who started this like objective and key results thing um, where you've got some objective that you're working towards and then you've got key results that like measure your progress towards that objective. And working myself in an OSPO at, at GitHub, I, I, I'll always ask myself with each thing that I'm undertaking as I start something new, like what objective is this serving and and what is this helping to accomplish? Not only does that motivate me to actually like do the thing and do it really well, um, that I'm whatever the task is I'm trying to do, but it also helps me understand when to say no. Admittedly, not something I'm super good at saying no. Um, you know, uh, check out some of Mike McQuaid's uh, blog posts uh, if you want to learn how to be better at that. I'm I'm still learning, but um, it does it does help me consider when I should say no if something isn't really helping to make progress on one of my you know, objectives that I'm, that I'm trying to do. And whether that's like object, big objectives, like mission goals for the OSPO and why it's there or our company and why it exists, or whether that's just what I'm trying to do this quarter or this, you know, whatever you measure your, um, your goals on, um, this year. So, um, I think if, if folks could focus on that, then we would, we would waste less time in our careers. You know, our careers, they have bookends. They don't go on forever. And um, we've only got so much time in it. And to make that time impactful and to accomplish your mission, that's that's what I see as like really beautiful. Like we were talking about um, with with Chris at Google. Uh, if if it's so clear to me that he accomplished so many impactful objectives there. And um, and as a person, when you talk to him, you also get that like He's not somebody who professes to talk openly and do openly and have that open source transparency spirit. He he lives it in your conversation, right? He'll he'll be open and transparent with you about his feelings. He's not going to um, hide that, but he's also going to say it in a really kind and encouraging way, right? So, um, yeah, that I'm I'm constantly chasing after that type of authenticity um, and and relevance. You know, things that that really make an impact. Because um, otherwise, it's just it, it may get you a good performance review, you know. It may make your company happy, happy, but it's not good for your legacy and your impact on the industry. And it's ultimately not good for your company either. Like they're they're not if they're not getting that impact out of it, you're just checking the boxes or whatever, making the making the every all the color codes turn green um, on your metrics. Like, yeah, you got to get out of that as quick as you can. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. I love that. Yeah, thanks for sharing. That's a great place to end it. Thanks again, Zach. This was really great. Um, I'm glad to hear that you were excited to talk about it. I was excited to learn more and I've learned a lot. So this has been super awesome and I can't wait to share with the community. Thanks so much and thanks for the work you do at GitHub and thanks for the work that GitHub does. I, for one, appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. Join the conversation on Discord. All the links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have a moment, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, as this helps others find us and helps us make a better podcast for you, our listeners. <laughs>